Okay, welcome to another interview for the Zero to Asic course. And today I'm very happy to be joined by Matt Guthaus. Hi, Matt, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. So I think probably a lot of people who um, have seen you before from the Fossey dial-up series where you presented OpenRAM, and that's the, the main thing that I want to um, talk to you about today. So if you haven't heard of OpenRAM or um, you don't know what it's for, then I really recommend you check out that Fossey dial-up talk because it's really good and it covers all the basics. But just as a very um, brief uh, recap, Matt, could you just tell us what OpenRAM is? Yeah, OpenRAM, it's a what's called a memory compiler. And unfortunately, the word compiler is kind of a misnomer. Um, you know, it's back from the silicon compiler days, so that's why it's called a compiler. But it it generates basically uh, the layout and timing and all the sort of models you need for memories. And it, so it's basically an IP generator. And it's written in Python. It uses external tools for like DRC checking and spice simulation and things like that. But then it generates all of the views you need to basically be able to use a memory because memory design is a bit different than digital design. It's kind of a hybrid of digital and analog design. So it kind of takes into account all those caveats to, you know, hopefully make, you know, working and reliable memories. So, so that's yeah. basically what it is. So, and uh, for people uh, new to ASIC design, <laughs> myself <laughs> included, um, one thing that I was surprised to find out was as an FPGA user or even a microcontroller user, you're used to having like these blocks of memory that you can just use. But um, the way that the open lane tools are at the moment is if you want like a big block of memory or a register file or something like that, you just define your register in Verilog. And then the tools just create a, a massive amount of flip-flops, which are the biggest yeah. standard cells. So they use up a huge amount of area. So yeah. what OpenRAM is doing is um, using a very custom bit cell to store the, the actual one or the zero, which is much, much smaller. But then the trade-off is it requires this kind of analog IP around the edge. Yeah, exactly. The, the bit cell... It's a six transistor cell, which is roughly like one fifth the size of a flip-flop. And so even when you add kind of the extra decode logic and stuff, you still get you still get area savings anywhere above a couple hundred flip-flops or hundred bits. And so it makes sense to use these um, whenever you use memories. The one limitation though tends to be the, uh, you have to think about read and write ports. Whereas when you have a bunch of flip-flops, you can access any of those flip-flops in parallel, right? From different addresses, whatever. Whereas with a memory, you can only access one address at a time. So that's why it's um, you know, it's a little bit different than a bank of flip-flops. So a limitation in terms of usage, but um, with the, the area savings, it's a big gain. So. so one thing that was quite interesting about what you said was if you ever need more than 100 flip-flops and it's worth it. And that's something that's interesting about the fact that it's a memory compiler written in Python is it's completely customizable, right? You can ask for any number of flip-flops that you want. Yeah, that's very Not true. Not flip-flops, the amount of memory. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where OpenRAM differentiates a little. So the idea of a memory compiler is you can tell it what size and configuration you want. Um, OpenRAM is really flexible in that basically we don't, we let you make many variants of different features and so on, and some of them may end up not working, so you need to test them. Whereas a lot of the commercial compilers, you'll basically get a compiler from a company and it, they'll say, okay, these 10 settings work, 
So you can have 10 different SRAMs, that's all you can do. That's the best case usually. Whereas OpenRAM, you know, we can make thousands of different sizes and varieties right now. And and it's it's with most open source stuff, you know, it's it's kind of user beware, right? But um but the advantage of that is you can really, you know, customize it for your particular application. And and I think that we're going to have some good success there, especially when we start to get many people verifying it and using it and reporting bugs. This whole crowdsourcing model for that is going to make it much more valuable and stronger, I think, than the, the competing products. So, yeah, we've. Um, if people are interested in the validation, then I'm also doing like a series of um, talks with Andrew Zonenberg, who's doing uh, some verification um, on the on various parts of the Open RAM tests. Um, so, uh, but one thing that I was interested to find was that. Um, uh, it takes quite a long time to actually create the memory, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, well, there's two different, um, there's a couple different settings that it depends on what you want to do. Um, actually creating the layout is fairly quick. Um, it can be, you know, a few minutes. The thing that really takes the most time is the characterization of the memory. So actually figuring out what the performance is. And we have a setting where you can use kind of analytical models that estimate it, but basically over all those different sizes and different options, they're not very accurate. Um, they give you some sort of a ballpark. Um, we're working on improving those using some ideas from like machine learning and things like that. And so you can expect some improvements in those kind of analytical models. But um, to get the most accurate estimates, you basically want to do spice simulation. And you know we're using, memories can get pretty big um, we try to prune out basically, you know, certain bits that you're not using and just look at kind of the critical path of the memory. But even that can get pretty slow when you start doing performance analysis. Um, we've recently added the capability to use the SICE simulator from uh, Sandia Labs. Eric Kiter and their group has this really great um, massively parallel SPICE simulator. And we've seen some big improvements with that. So we've been able to simulate up to the uh, 4K byte memory um, and shown it successfully working. Now we're still working on the 8K byte and a 16K byte memory, which we've fabricated without simulating. And so we'll kind of see what goes on there. But um, yeah, it you know getting something you can use can be quick, but then getting something that's accurate can take longer. And that's one of the big challenges with this project, really, is where to come. Hopefully, we'll get that. some feedback when we get the results back from the the test. Yeah. And I should comment that you mentioned Andrew Zonenberg. I've kind of said we have three phases of OpenRAM. So we had actually a tape out before MPW1, which is what he's testing. The goal of that was basically functionality. So we wanted a functional memory. It actually relied on commercial tools. So it used um, commercial tools for verification and stuff with the original Skywater PDK that was not open source. And you know, between there and MPW1, we made the transition to the fully open source tool flow. Um, OpenRAM's always been based, OpenRAM can always work with commercial and open source tools. So we were able to, you know, utilize some of that, but we had to basically get up to speed with the open source tools with the Skywater PDK. And so uh, MPW1 was basically open source flow with SRAM. And then MPW2 was basically add lots, lots of different sizes of memories. So you can see with the tape out there, we added 10 different variants of memories, which again, we want functionality on them all, but kind of you know different 
capabilities. Then I think next next generation is going to basically be focusing on performance. So, cool. Um, yeah. So that was one of my uh, questions for you: was what what are the kind of the big changes between when you did the talk for the Fossi dial-up and for what you've uh, just used for submitting to MPW two? Yeah. So we, I mentioned we went from the commercial flow to the open source flow. That was the big change, and that required you know lots of. You know, obviously, during MPW1, there was lots of things that were kind of changing and fixing the flow and so on. And so we ran into lots of similar problems. So I know I worked, you know, pretty often and frequently with Tim Edwards. You know, obviously he's the guru of the entire flow. And so we were working with getting, you know, just DRC LVS clean layouts and then addressing some of the other issues with um, memories. In particular, things like um, I guess things like you mentioned the bit cell, where the bit cell is you know six transistors, but it actually doesn't follow the same design rules that the digital logic f follows. In Skywater terms, uh, the bit cell follows what's called core memory rules, and um, because this process was actually made to make SRAMs originally, um, and from Cypress Semiconductor before it became Sy Skywater. And so they have the, the core rules are basically what's used to make memories. And some of the spacing and things are basically smaller than what you can do in the user rules. So if you run the DRC check with the user rules, it's like, oh, you have 100 million error or 100,000 errors. And so kind of coming up with methodologies of like, how do you verify when the DRC checker can't, you know, distinguish those rules from the each other. So we kind of did some of that stuff. Um, even things like you know reading in the spice models, um, you know some of the simulators had trouble, you know just reading in, parsing them them and doing all the includes. Uh, the scale issue with the transistors, uh, the the Skywater DR our spice models have this. Um, everything's in microns instead of meters, like most spice decks, and so kind of addressing those issues when you're doing simulation and LVS and extraction. So lots of kind of small things, just getting the flow working with the open PDK. That took a lot longer than expected, but um, it's... <laughs> well, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. It's probably worth mentioning here that you're a professor at university, right? Yeah, I'm a professor and I'm also the associate dean of our graduate program in engineering. So, mm -hmm. And so this is like a, a quite a... How long has it open RAM been going for anyway? It's gone through many iterations. It's been going on since at least about 2013. Um, it started out then as a set of Perl scripts. Mm. And I kind of evolved, did a major rewrite into Python like a year or so later. And yeah, there was a, an original NSF grant that let us get some of the basic functionality. And then really, I've been trying to find its niche. And then when this whole thing happened with Google and Skywater, it's, I met Tim Mansell at a at a conference and we talked about it and it's like this is a perfect match. You know, this is what we've been looking for, this is what they've been looking for. Because yeah. so we, kind of we need that there. um so like in the uh, the bottom left hand corner of the um the die, uh, yeah. we've got those two one kilobyte SRAM blocks that are vital for the yeah the, the Pico RV thirty two. So Yeah, because it's interesting if you talk to designers they're always frustrated with SRAMs that are available to them and the SRAM compilers. They all, you, I don't think you can talk to a designer that says, oh, I'm, I'm okay with the memories. 
And so, um, but then you talk to the foundries and kind of the memory people and they're like, oh, we can't do anything different. You know, we, that's, this is the way it's done. We know that these work, you can't change them. And so really we've approached it from kind of a different point of view We've with OpenRAM where it's like, it's, it's the open source mentality of like, we want people to play with it. We want people to break things and see why it breaks and then fix it and improve it. And um, it's, it's um, a different way of thinking about hardware design. And so, um, so have, have you had a lot of um, your students contribute to it over the years? Yeah, there's been probably like a dozen students, a couple master's projects, a few undergrad projects, even um, a, a number of students have contributed through the years. So yeah, I started really originally cool. with one of my students PhD thesis where he was doing some of those Perl scripts and we were doing um, things for reliability of like ultra low voltage memories. So if you run at kind of sub threshold voltage, um, you know, what is the reliability and so on. And so we generated some arrays and things like that for his thesis. And then it kind of grew out from there. Okay. So maybe you could talk us through the, um, the layout of your application for MPW2. Yeah. So um, I mentioned this, the goal of this one was to have more functionality of memories. And basically we, in the previous, um, pre-MPW tape out and MPW1, we had focused basically on a dual port memory. And so one read-write port and one read port. And that basically all the five memories on the left of the image are um, dual port memories. But instead of just having the one kilobyte size that we taped out before, we basically have um, uh, four other variants. One is a, a one kilobyte with an 8-bit data word and then a two kilobyte, four kilobyte, eight kilobyte. And um, so kind of increasing size. And then the other addition on this one was basically the single port memories, which um, we had not taped out these before. Um, the, the dual port memories basically add two extra transistors to the bit cell. And so it increases the area by probably, I'm ballparking, you know, 10, 15%. And so having a single port can be smaller and so we, we basically um, got the single port memories working and we did um, four or five different sizes for that. Uh, one kilobyte, two kilobyte, four kilobyte, eight kilobyte. And then there's two variants of the four kilobyte. One has a bigger, I guess the four and eight have a 64-bit data word instead of a 32-bit data word. So, so you can see that the functionality was not only the... Um, number of ports, but then also the sizes and then the size of the data words as well. So that's kind of the, the variety of memories that we created. And um, in terms of the design, basically it's, you know, it all fits in the, the user uh, project space. Um, we did a, a, basically all of the SRAMs are instantiated at the top level. And then we do um, gates at that same top level mixed with the, um, the SRAM blocks. And then the gates uh, implement functionality for a couple things. There's basically two test modes. Um, one where you can basically scan in uh, a big re register value, and that register value kind of decodes to which SRAM you want to use, uh, what the data you want to write or read, and the address, and then kind of the, the, um, the uh, control bits as well. So you can basically scan in kind of a, this register, clock it once, and then scan out the result to, to verify memories. 
So that's one way of doing verification of this. And then the second way of doing verification is basically using the logic analyzer from the, um, the Caravel um, host processor. And so we use that bus to basically access that same register and basically you know, be able to um, read and write from any one of the memories at, at a time. Um, we probably should have added a third method of using the actual wishbone bus as well. Um, we thought about that kind of at the last, you know, last week or so, but we didn't really want to change the design too much in the last, um, last while. Yeah. It's always a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should mention that this was actually, um, based on a class project with, um, two students. One of them is my graduate student, uh, Jesse Sirmelli Lowe, and then, um, Amog who, who is, um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he, he's a graduate student of Professor Jose Renault, and they were taking my um, my VLSI class, which basically everyone was targeting this um, shuttle run, and um, so they spent like another two weeks after the end of the classes to basically finalize this design and get it out the door. It, the time timeline worked out really well, so yeah. Yeah, it's very cool seeing this. So regarding MPW2, what was the hardest part of getting all of this ready? Um, so I would say that the hardest part, I thought that going into it using, like getting the open lane flow and stuff going would be a little more straightforward than I thought. But I think it was hard to kind of manage the different versions of open lane as well as the tools in open lane, because with the memories, I was basically submitting patches to things like Magic and NetGen, and you know, and those were changing. So I needed the newest versions of those tools. But then Open Lane would have older versions, and so I had to basically upload the or upgrade the Docker image to have newer versions and so on. So I think tracking versioning was kind of the hardest issue, um, you know, with the tool flow with Open RAM because with Open RAM also I have the Open RAM code and then the um, what we call the build space, which is basically the cells and the technology stuff for Skywater that configures Open RAM to do what we need. And so tracking those as well, you know, can get things mixed up. So yeah, and um, there was um, there's like a special like you mentioned, if you just try to run the DRC checker on a design that includes Open RAM, then you're going to get a hundred thousand DRC errors. Yeah, um, and that was causing a lot of problems right at the end. I noticed on the at the MPW two submission date. Yeah, so what what what's the the workaround about that? I don't I don't quite understand how that was resolved. So basically, when we run Open RAM, uh, we do DRC and LVS and report the results. And when we do DRC, the the bit cell itself um, basically will not pass DRC checks. And so what we do is we use uh, kind of a methodology that um, Tim Edwards kind of suggested where it's called a um, magic left file or a mag left file, where we're, instead of having, for, for LVS, we actually extract the normal bit cell because you can still extract it even though it has DRC errors. But then when we do DRC checking, we replace the bit cell with a DRC passing cell that basically doesn't have the transistors. So all it has is kind of the top level metal and that, that you know, from not even the LI layer, so the local interconnect layer, but the metal one and metal two, which passes DRC. So you're basically doing DRC on assuming that the bit cell passes. And which you've already proven by looking at this uh, well, Skywater base rules and running the DRC when you generate the RAM. Well, 
So that bit cell is actually given to us by Skywater. Ah, okay, right. So it is correct. So they know it works. Yeah. So they know it works. We actually can't change it. They won't because it, you know, because they violate those rules. They they've tested it during manufacturing, and they're like, this will work reliably. You know, this is the memory cell. So you it's have already to use the, fully optimized. Yeah, you have to use the exact cell. You have to use the exact adjacent cells. You know, it has to be exactly their usage. And so, um, it, during MPW one, they actually came back to us at one point because there were a couple discrepancies where things were not quite as they expected it, and we iterated with them after the MPW one tape out or tape in, I guess. So before the tape out, and um, fixed some of those issues. They were relatively minor things, but. Yeah, so um, now is it built into the um, open lane that if you if it detects you're using open RAM, then it will automatically do this for you? Or do you have to like make a configuration setting? Or that's actually something I've not followed up with um, the open lane folks on. Um, what it should do in open lane is when you have a memory, either do DRC with just the left file of the whole memory, so don't even get inside of it to the decoders and stuff. Or actually, I think I gave Tim Edwards the maglev files for the cells. And so he was basically having it copy those over and use those instead. So I think that's what it ended up doing. But okay. it's kind of the same methodology that I was doing mm -hmm. in OpenRAM. And for the single port, we hadn't set that up yet because no one was using, using single port except for us. And so. Okay. Yeah. So. Um... So for, for my course, I'm getting asked a lot with people who want to do designs that use memories. And I'm always saying, we just have to wait until uh, open RAM is ready for us to use. Mm -hmm. um, and my plan for MPW3 is to put, instead, take one of those 16 blocks that I use for people on the course and put a, an open SRAM, an open RAM block in there, mm -hmm. and then make that available to all the other um, individual projects so they can use it if they need to. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, it's really, I think it's great to have now a, a golden reference that we can point people to and say, this was taped out from PW2. It includes a test. It includes instantiation. It, all the config is working, all the test is working and everything is, is done. So yeah. I think that's, um, a really fantastic resource for the community. I'm really happy that, yeah. I'm really happy that you made it happen and also given Given the uh, stress that I saw you all go through during MPW2, glad that I held off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you know some of the challenges specifically were things like the power routing. Um, I think the power routing is kind of finicky in open lane, where you know depending even on what you, even what you're saying, like the the routing, you know, because the to start with the pins weren't long enough, and then the router couldn't do. You know, there's all these little. Yeah. bits that trip you up that you just take for yeah. granted and then it doesn't work. So you have to figure out yeah. why not and then how to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what took me an extra couple weeks and kind of pushed us to the deadline um, was just kind of iterating through those things where um, we, had, we had used open RAM in commercial tools and the commercial tools were a little more flexible and kind of what they expected for pin access and power supplies and things like that. And I think you know, we're still in kind of the early stages of the open source flows where they're a little more rigid in what they expect right now, but um, they'll improve over time, right? So Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So um, so we've had like the, the kind of the context in the past and we've had like what's just happened from PW2. So what's the plan for the future? Yeah. So we're basically, I think we're going to focus on um, 
performance for the next iteration is one of the main goals. We're also going to focus on, we're going to be for the, um, I guess the first, there's two tape outs supposedly in the next year, one in kind of October and one December, I think are the rough deadlines. For the October one, our goal is to add asynchronous memories. Um, we're working with uh, uh, Rajit Manahar from Yale, who's really famous in kind of the asynchronous computing area. And we're going to add it so that you can use a four-phase handshake to talk to the memory. And it will basically be self-timed that way. Um, right now, we do a different way of doing the timing in OpenRAM. And so we're going to try to offer that option for the, on some test, not for users, but as test runs um, and get that done. And then we were actually at Skywater last week. Um, yeah, I saw the photo. And that Tim looks cool. And so on. And we're hoping to uh, get access to some resistive RAM uh, devices. And so having non-volatile memory on the December um, run, that's what we're hoping to do. Um, the idea is instead of that 16-bit cell, we can use a resistive RAM device, which is essentially, it's kind of like a VIA between Metal 1 and Metal 2. But depending on kind of how much current you put through it, you can basically change the resistance of this device. And it doesn't change. If you cut power to it, it will remember. And so it's non-volatile. Wow, and I've never even heard of that type of memory before. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a bit like flash. It's a bit like flash, except it's a single kind of stack of um, um, metal, well, kind of with channels through it. And then the um, oxide um, molecules basically flow in and fill the channels or not to change the resistance. So it's one of the contenders to kind of replace flash. It's also been used in a lot of kind of uh, neuromorphic computing and machine learning kind, kind of memories to remember the weights for you know different models. And I think um, this is exciting that we really want to do this because I think that could add kind of a new dimension besides just SRAMs to OpenRAM. So, are there are there any plans for um, you know the, like on an FPGA if you kind of say, okay, I need like um, 500 or 1,000 or 2,000, and it will try to fit it into the block RAMs that are available. Um, is there any plans for having it so that you could just say, okay, give give me like a 500 uh, length, 16-bit wide um, memory, and then it would instantiate an open RAM for you? That's actually a really good point. That's, that's been on my list. Um, I have a grad student coming in that we're talking about exactly this, you know, He's, he submitted one of the designs. So this is Hadir Khan. He actually submitted to MPW1. Um, he's from Pakistan. He's going to join my group. He did a chisel design for that. And like the back end of chisel kind of doesn't really map memory as well. You kind of just have a mapping and so on. So we want to look at kind of how you infer memory devices from Verilog. Yeah. That's, that's really something. Because if you actually look at the, the way that, if you read the, the logs that Yosis prints out when you're when it's looking for like an applicable block RAM, yeah. you could have, okay, we've got the one, two, four, eight, six, all these different varieties that have already been pre-made, simulated, yeah. you've got the behavioral models for, and then it can pick between them. Yeah. So so that, that's a great idea. And that's I'm, I definitely want to do this. Um, I want people to help too, because yeah, changing Yosis is a game changer, right? Where previously you couldn't change the synthesis tool. I think we could even go one step further. There, there's this idea of having discrete memories that you can pick from. But there's also this idea if we can give it a range of memories and kind of a performance trade-off of that range, you can actually synthesize, you know, be like, I want to use two, two banks of memory from OpenRAM instead of one giant one because 
it's a little bigger, but it's better performance for my need. And so there's kind of trade-offs you can do and even kind of the memory organization that we could do. Yeah. I, I don't know if that should be kind of its own interface to Yosis or, or what, but um, I think that's, you know, that's where a designer would usually come in and be like, okay, how do I want to make my cache? You know, what size banks do I want? What size this, that I think that all can be automated. There's no reason it yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, that is very great news, and I'm super looking actually, forward to using um, Open RAM in my next tape out. I actually, I should be... I should plug that I mentioned the cache because I have a yeah. student that I've been working with in Turkey that we're going to be releasing uh, Open Cache. So you can basically say, "I want a direct map cache," you know, with this size tag and so on, and it'll generate the Open RAM blocks for you, and then you can and the, the associated Verilog, and you can use it. All the control stuff as well. That's easy yeah, to get wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So. And do you want to plug, um, is it Woset? How do you pronounce it? Oh, yeah. Woset. So Woset is the work workshop on open source EDA technologies. So it says EDA. It's primarily EDA, but we also take some open source hardware designs. Um, the key is open source. This is kind of the um, antithesis of most conferences where we require you to have an open source repository to get a paper in and to submit a paper. Um, so we, um, yeah, it's a great workshop. It's been held twice in person. Last year it was virtual and obviously growing pains going virtual the first year. We, it's gonna be virtual again this November. Um, it's associated with ICCAD, but we allow anyone to attend this workshop uh, since it's virtual and it's easy to pull off with a large number of attendees. And so, there's two tracks of papers. You can either submit a four-page paper, and then we'll have a 15-minute video, or you can just submit like an abstract and then have like a five to 10-minute video. And um, any sort of project that um, we'll, we have a program committee that'll take a look at them and make sure that we have kind of you know good projects. And it's a great place to um, kind of to show off your work because a lot of conferences, if it's open source, they say, "Oh, it's already out there. We don't want it in our conference." And so we take the opposite view of it has to be out there and we only want open source things. Great. Okay. So, and if people want to apply, then I'll put the link um, in the video description so you can take a look there. Yeah, great. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Matt, for your time. Really cool talking to you. I'm glad we uh, finally got around to it. We've been planning this for at least six months now. <laughs> yeah, too many deadlines. So yeah. <laughs> it was good we waited until MPW2. Um, yeah. And I'll also post the link to the um, project application that you made that people can use as a reference for their own okay. uh, open RAM designs. And we should work together on making a tutorial for using memories. Um, I, I still yeah. want to do that. Uh, just either generating memories from open RAM and using them, or and also just using the memories from the library. I think yeah. both are useful. Well, I think your, um, your reference is going to be great for that because it's got the tests with the behavioral models yeah. and it's got the instantiation and it passes all the eFabulous tests. So that will be yeah. a good, a great starting point. But yeah, yeah. watch this space. We'll definitely, we'll definitely yeah. improve the documentation over time. Yeah, great. All right. So um, thanks again for your time and I'll see you when I see you. <laughs> yeah, great. See you later. <laughs>